it's been a lacuna in our education that students would come filled with desire and commitment to become schooled in that which global health needs require. And yet they'd get here and we wouldn't quite know how to teach them what they needed to teach, what they needed to learn. So slowly we're trying to get better. There's now going forward um, a requirement that all students in the medical school now do scholarly projects in one field or another. Uh, one of the fields is narrative medicine, so that we'll have some students kind of specializing in what we do. Uh, but the other, there's six of them, and one of the six is indeed global health. Uh, so that we're able to, we have at least a structure for going forward to improve this aspect of, of the training of our physicians. Um, and so, I wanted to open this to, to all of us, not just those here from the medical school, but all of us in this clearing, in this community, dedicated to making the healthcare better. Um, before I introduce our introducer, I just want to make one other comment. Joe, Joe Finnerty. Fenelon wrote me an email during the week saying, you know, there might there's something that healthcare professionals can do about gun violence in this country that nobody's doing. And can we not think about that? And so he had blogs and he had positions and but I just want you to Joe, stand up. Don't if you don't mind. So so here's someone in our clearing who is taking it as his own right now passion to gather healthcare professionals to do something about civilian, if you will, gun violence. And I think that's an example of what it is we're trying to um, accomplish. I want to now introduce Max Rittenberg. Max is a third year medical student at Physicians and Surgeons. He's now on his pediatric rotation. He and I worked together last year in uh, trying to gather resources uh, in, in global health and, and um, social justice. He was the president of the International Health Organization, which is a student group, and he kind of on his own, on the steam or the fuel of his passion and experience, brought to his fellow students the um, leadership, uh, among others, uh, to get us beyond where we were last year in making global health an important part of this curriculum. And I asked him if he would introduce our speaker. <clears throat> Thank you, Rita. Um, it's my honor to introduce Dr. Matthew Spitzer. Dr. Spitzer graduated from Yale with distinction in philosophy and obtained his medical degree from Cornell University Medical School in 1995. <clears throat> Dr. Spitzer's additional studies have included the Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Medical Acupuncture with the UCLA Helms Medical Institute. Dr. Spitzer joined MSF, Doctors Without Borders, in 1999, establishing primary care services and training medical providers in Kampa, Tibet, in southwestern China. He's worked as a field coordinator with MSF in Sierra Leone, with MSF USA to explore the medical needs of asylum seekers in New York area detention centers, and then in Cambodia, 
where he coordinated MSF's response to a dengue epidemic. Dr. Spitzer served on the board of directors of MSF US from June of 2006 before becoming board president in June of 2008. A family physician, Dr. Spitzer worked for 10 years in San Francisco at the St. Anthony Free Clinic and its affiliated drug rehabilitation program. He then practiced for a year and a half at San Quentin State Prison and taught in the case-based curriculum of UC Berkeley's joint medical program. Now based in New York City, he is an assistant professor of clinical medicine and director of pre-doctoral education here at Columbia's Center for Family and Community Medicine. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Matthew Spitzer. Thank you. So thank you so much, Max and Rita and Scott and everyone for coming um, in what is really pretty atrocious weather. Um, so, and uh, I'm actually, I'm particularly impressed. Um, I have a very vivid memory of um, my medical school pediatrics rotation. And by the end of it, I had conjunctivitis in both eyes and had um, lost my voice and was limping basically down the down the hall, that, but I, the degree in hygiene was specifically so I wouldn't, um, so I'd wash my hands and not do that again. So, um, so um, thank, really thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to um, start by introducing you a bit to MSF or Médecins Sans Frontières, the, the, the French name for Doctors Without Borders, the name we're, we're usually known uh, by in the field. Um, some key concepts, guiding principles of the work we do and, and that I think really apply just as much to here and the work I've done here and I think many of you do. Um, and, you know, applying here, applying abroad really in the same way. I'm going to, um, and then as I go through, I'm, I've picked out a number of things, some really sort of big and full in the media and prominent things you may have seen or heard before and and talk a bit about them, read you an excerpt, or show you a, a particular piece about it, um, and include also some individual reflections, some individual pieces, to, to just give you a flavor of the um, of really the range of, of things that come out of the, the work we do and how it's expressed and some of my thoughts about it. I've tried um, um, really not to... The, I, I do my best not to talk too long and over-explain, which are both... Uh, things I, I'm capable of doing. Um, but I really want to introduce this and lay some things out. I'll go through some of them a, a quite quickly, So, but I want to make sure that there's time for people to ask questions or ask to back up or, or share your thought about what you heard. And I tried to give you quite a bit of raw thing, the raw image, um, the raw kind of statements that were made. And I'll skip around a bit. So that's, that's the idea um, for today. We'll see how it goes. Um, so, um, okay, so go ahead and, oh, I have the clicker, right? Okay. Great. So, um, so Doctors Without Borders, MSF, it's an international independent medical humanitarian organization. And those for us are some very specific words. Um, it started, um, the origins of it really started in 1971. This was in the Biafran War or the Nigerian Civil War, depending on which side you supported, you call it different names, um, which was really um, something that's not unfamiliar to us in the current kind of war reporting, that a very large loss of life of civilians, probably numbering around a million or, or two million um, aid workers going to help out. And at the time, um, 
the French Red Cross was really doing most of the work in the hospitals and feeding centers here in Biafra because there was quite a large nutrition uh, emergency. And the Red Cross had in place their policy, which required workers to sign an agreement that prohibited public speech about what they were doing and what they were seeing. The ICRC, the Red Cross, has a specific mandate in international law. It's to be able, it allows them to be on the field uh, of battle by law, but um, also, but part of that contract is then not speaking out and not raising, um, not sort of spreading that beyond. It, it, it's the, the space they have is to work without talking. Um, and several of the doctors in a situation like this, there's a lot of revisionist history about it, but either way, there was quite a lot of manipulation. There was a, a national government that essentially was laying siege to a part of its own civilian population. And there are quite some reports that the secessionist leaders as well were cutting off aid, were refusing things to worsen the situation internally so as to garner media attention, manipulate aid workers. It's quite complex. Um, but the, several doctors uh, and people who worked there came out and said that this, this situation not only medically is so bad, but the, the sheer manipulation and the creation of this situation is not something that, that we can stand by and treat patients by patient, but really something more needs to be done. So they came back home and they broke ranks and spoke out publicly about what was going on there. Um, and it was felt at that time that a new organization was needed that would prioritize the welfare of victims over political or other boundaries um, that would speak out when, when, the, when the very kind of integrity and the very ability to deliver care, the very ability of civilians and their protection when that's violated, and an, organ, an organization that would maintain individual conscience in its association and not subject their individual eyes and ears, what they were seeing and doing, to an organizational framework. Um, so this is, this is, a kind of a, this is the historic photo of the, the doctors and journalists signing the original MSF charter. I have no idea, no one's ever told me if this was actually staged after the fact or anything like that. But anyway, this is um, bandied around. and um, I think it can, you can only really find it as a tiny thumbnail. Someone's got the original somewhere. But um, So um, I, I'm going to just put the – this is the charter that was, that was written. It's, it's quite short, but I, I still find it um, quite moving, actually. So I, I put the text here. Um, and so it's Médecins Sans Frontières provides assistance to populations in distress – to victims of natural or man-made disasters and to victims of armed conflict. They do so irrespective of race, religion, creed, or political convictions. Um, some people say it reads better in French. I, I don't know. I can't tell you. Um, so MSF observes neutrality and impartiality in the name of universal medical ethics and the right to humanitarian assistance and claims full and unhindered freedom in the exercise of its functions. So this is actually very specific language. Um, so neutrality is n what you know, is not taking sides, is not taking a political side, um, not whether it's a political or religious or other side in, in the conflict. Impartiality is something that was, was also meant quite specifically, and what that means is the impartiality really of like an ER doctor doing triage, that patients are to be treated according to the, their need, the acuity of their need, 
uh, according to the, the severity of the situation, and that that is the, the only guidance of which patient is treated and in what order, and in, in, and in deciding what country to go to and what to do, this is a really, really key, the depth uh, and the, the severity of the need that's there. Um, that the medical action that people are coming together to provide meets this, this, the need according to this principle and not with another agenda in mind. Um, members undertake their professional code of ethics to maintain complete independence from all political, economic, or religious powers. This goes back again to independence. It's why we have the policies we do around fundraising. We don't take money from the U.S. government. There's a whole host of things that have gone around this, but also independent in the field to be able to access and, and assess a population and their need independently, not, not being told where to go or where to do, um, and to be able to carry out that according to what we think is the right, what we think is the best care. Um, and those are really, uh, really quite key. Um, and then we're volunteers, essentially. I've learned actually only recently that there's two words for volunteer in French. I forget the other one. Does someone know? No? Elizabeth? No? <coughs> yes, yeah, thank you. Benevol. So volunteer and benevol. So benevol is charity, really, as you do it in nothing. Volunteers mean you do it, it doesn't really translate in English, as a volunteer spirit. So it's not that you have to sacrifice your entire life to get nothing. And, you know, it's not about that. It's a spirit of we go by choice. You go from your, through your will that you choose to do this and not... And because you belong to something or something else, you, you choose to you choose this this uh, path and this work you do, um, and you don't get paid that much. Um, so I, I, I'm going to go ahead and now and start to lay out a few things um, for you. Um, some of them are, are longer and shorter, but um, oh, I want I want to actually I, I'm going to read to you one one more thing first. Um, so. You know, the, the, so like, this is what I've been talking about. Is, so there's two really two pillars people call it, or two main activities, and this is medical action, carrying out medical activities, and témoignage, or, or which is this French word for kind of bearing witness and speaking out. And we understand these as really two main things that that go along in the work we do and that coexist. And as I talk about it, I'm going to try to point out the the connection between those and how I really feel that the, the one is absolutely rooted to the other two. It, my belief that to do, to carry out your work and to be present and to be there with the patient, you, you can't do that without really being with them. And, um, and in, this, in the same token, to be able to speak on their behalf, to raise their voice or, or bring attention to it, um, you can't do it without that medical act, without having actually been there in the room. Um, so I wrote, there's, there's a bit of a, you know, we've in some ways, um, the, our, the organization has grown really tremendously and we're quite large, we're often expected to be in places. And with the size of our programs, I'll show you something a little bit later about early programs in Afghanistan when, you know, it was a team of 15 people with mules doing uh, bandage dress, uh, uh, dressing changes and things like that. You know, in the last few years, there were vaccinations of 7 million um, for meningitis, um, you know, 160,000 people on, a on antiretrovirals for AIDS. I mean, the scope and size of the programs is immense. And with that has come a, a new tension internally about um, we're speaking out now when it, it can bring programs at risk. It can antagonize governments or other people and, and put when, – when we were doing a couple of dressing changes – 
the sim- symbolism and the meaning to that person is very important. But now these huge programs really, in some way, there's more at risk. And we've had a kind of internal organizational debate about when to speak out and when not. And then, um, and I wrote something I'm just going to share with you. This is kind of an internal draft, but I just want to read. As, as the organization is deciding and the communications department is talking to the operations department, for me, I thought there was a piece that was missing. So um, this was sent out, and we're going to be debating this really over the next several months to try to forge a, 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 a sense of how we're going to go forward with this. Um, so medical assistance and bearing witness or speaking out are distinct activities, but they're united in the medical act. In the provider-patient relationship, there is being with the patient, an accompaniment to the patient that is not separable. With its origins in the medical act and guided by medical ethics, there is a spectrum from simple being with the patient to witnessing the patient's experience to personal or, or local or non-public advocacy to raising awareness, um, to speaking out, so international or national campaigns or pressure, public advocacy work. And then this spectrum continues to denunciation. It's important whether we choose to speak publicly or not as an organization, we recognize the impetus to do so comes from our medical identity and action and the right of every one of us to express his or her individual conscience. So I'm going to go through that. I'm going to give some examples and highlight some things for you and hopefully point out where they fall into this kind of spectrum. I, I don't know if that word's the right one. I, I, I've drawn this out as a kind of ladder of, of you know, publicly visible to personal or, or private actions um, or it's a, conti- a continuum or it's a cycle. I, I don't know. Maybe you have ideas by the end. Um, but, um, but there's this host of different ways and different um, aspects of what we do. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm going to go ahead. Um, so just, um, so um, on the 28th, so January 28th, um, MSF um, put out a press release. I want to read you a couple of selections from it. Um, so it's a press release, uh, DRC, um, Congo. Civilians increasingly targeted by violence and insecurity in the East Women, men, and children victimized by another instance of mass rape. So, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières has provided specialized care to 53 women, men, and children who were raped in a series of incidents that occurred between January 19th and 21st in South Kivu province, which is in the east of the DRC. Uh, Anne-Marie Louf, who was the MSF um, head of mission in South Kivu, said... Um, In the space of a few weeks alone, MSF has provided medical treatment for nearly 100 cases, men, uh, women, and children, all of whom have been raped in mass attacks. We are extremely concerned about the fate of civilians in this area, normal people who have nothing to do with the conflict and who bear the brunt of a recent increase in violence and insecurity in this part of eastern DRC. In an already volatile context, MSF is witnessing a further deterioration of the situation which is directly impacting the civilian population. MSF has provided medical care to the people attacked, treating wounds and providing preventative treatment for possible uh, sexually transmitted infections. Their survivors were also vaccinated against hepatitis B and tetanus. Girls and women examined in time were offered morning after pills to prevent unwanted pregnancies. So this is in the press release. 
there's and this is a, a photo from from one of the um, one of the women um, who was there in South Kivu. Um, I, I just uh, there's a couple things that I want to point out. One is the, the the medical nature of it, which I think is extremely important. It's it's uh, not at all uncommon to go and to get a, a sense of things or see and and to kind of then do public speaking advocacy, but rooting it providing the treatment, being there, being with the patients, and really specifically, it's related to our medical identity that there's a real medical act and a real medical offer. Ten years ago, actually, that kind of medical response to rape, I, I can say, we, we were not proficient at. Morning after pills, proper exams and documentation, it was really just getting getting going. Um, and, um, but th and that was internally really found to be unacceptable. So this is a real professional medical level act. But then, you know, bringing this to light, I mean, there are a lot of things that have been in the newspaper in the last few days. This has not been one of them. Um, I, uh, and, you know, thing, and it, so I pulled, actually, it didn't copy that well, but I pulled part of the New York Times um, from this morning. You know, the top is Egypt and everything that's going on there, which is likely of historic importance. But you skip down to the bottom, and there's these three things that one is, the first one on the left is a hacking case. Can you see that? Kind of. Anyway, a hacking case becomes a war of the tabloids, which is, uh, you know, a computer hacking newspaper something. Um, I was nervous about the speech, so I didn't read the article in full. Um, the, uh, the next thing is, um, you know, Madoff had wide role in Mets finances, a riveting and really important thing for some of us, for sure. But, um, and... Um, and then the last thing I can't with uh, which says um, with a slash here and slice there, Cuomo offers shrunken budget. Um, so, uh, you know, I I'm struck. It's just an example. I mean, this this incident in Congo happened a couple of days ago, and this press release. You know, in the last month in the Times, there was actually an excellent editorial on the assassination of um, Patrice Lumumba, which is really good, but only talks at the end a bit about the current situation and context. That's something that happened 50 years ago, though it's excellent. Um, there have been a couple things by Nicholas Kristof, one of the columnists, um, and uh, actually it was a, a blog entry from one of his students that talked about what happened, and there was a travel section piece on a hotel near Lake Kivu, fairly near where this happened. Um, and it's just, you know, e even, you know, even the New York Times, even all these, it's just the, the ability to, to bring these things to the forefront, to just be able to put them in front of people and have them hear it, it's really quite difficult. Mm -hmm. The other thing I notice about this is, um, is the language itself, actually, a hacking case, you know, with this, and this kind of this slashing and slicing. There's this really violent um, imagery that, it, that I did not go to the newspaper really looking for that, but... After I pulled the page, I really struck by that. So in essence, we sort of are living on that. We're like grabbing these words and images and being really dramatic and evocative about things that, you know, compared to what is act where this is actually happening, it's, um, it's really quite a difference. Um, so I'm going to go... Um, I'm going to go to the next thing, really a very different... Um, very different modality from the press release. I'll, I'll read a couple of other things later. So this is, um, so I want to talk about the part in that chain, you know, in that ladder, just the part it, kind of in the middle about public speaking and about raising awareness. Um, 
And um, you know, the first thing that the press release that I just just told you about was really it's it's a to, the idea was to raise awareness, to bring to light what's going on, and and what's actually happening in in so many places in the world that are just not not seen and not in front of people. So this is a um, this is a obviously an entirely different way of raising awareness. I don't know how many of you have seen this book. A couple people. So. This is a large format graphic novel. I'll, um, I have a copy. You can flip through it later if you want. Um, but it was it was written around um, a huge number of uh, photographs, mostly that had been unpublished, um, taken from his contact sheets of um, Didier Lefebvre or Lefevre. I think it's Lefebvre, but we have an MSF nurse who calls herself Lefevre, and she spells it the same way. So anyway, so this is Didier on the on the left. Um, he was. Um, and went with Juliette Fourneau, who was the head of mission on these early trips into Afghanistan. And the book um, talks about and, and really shows a, a huge array of his photos from this early Afghanistan expedition in 1986. Um, and the idea really behind his photos back then and the book now is really to try to, especially now with the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, to put back before people like what it is actually like on the ground, what civilians are actually experiencing, what the implications are, what, what the experience is for people who are trying to do something and just what it looks like. Um, they're really kind of incredible images and things. So um, Didier, he died uh, just three or four years ago at, at age 49, um, but went on after this. At the time was literally a, a guy who had done a little bit of MSF work and liked taking pictures but really an eye and a skill, and, and Juliette asked him to go along. Juliette was a, actually a, de a dentist by training. She'd done some previous work with MSF. She had lived in her teenage years in Afghanistan, so she was fluent in Dari. Um, she, at that time, looked more or less like that, a very young, blonde, um, slight woman who led the missions there. And the missions basically consisted of illegally crossing the mountains with, on, with horses, um, in order to in areas that were being um, bombed by the Soviets at that time, just to to be there, right? Again, the choice to go and to be present and to be there to do what they could to provide assistance. The assistance the assistance by our standards now was really quite limited, uh, based some basic sort of field war surgery, um, dressing changes, uh, some antibiotics, that sort of thing. But being able to get inside and be there. And also, for me, you know, a demonstration that ultimately we have the head of mission uh, or the director of operations in Paris now says, talks about this all the time, that we're an illegitimate association, that fundamentally we don't exist and we don't do our work like the Red Cross does as a part of international law. But we do it because we choose to do. And though we, uh, we bring attention to international law and the protections it provides, ultimately we think that the needs of patients are, and the medical ethics of needing to treat are more compelling than the law or national boundaries or other things. It's rare that we violate that sort of thing now for all sorts of reasons, but ultimately the ability to do that, to cross a border, to go in, to be there where the patients are, this is really key. And this is what the, the missions were doing very early on. Um, so this is just one page from it. And, and I, so the book and the pictures really, I think, bring this sort of to light, but I, I want to um, just point out something else about this, which I, for me is really, um, really striking. So this is, um, I don't, can you see the images, sort of? Eh, sorry. Um, so anyway, so Didier is, um, 
the one with the glasses on top, and um, there was uh, one of the Mujahideen, one of the fighters who were um, fighting against the Soviets, um, had um, ruptured his uh, the globe of his eye, and um, and the team that was in nearby was asked to come see him, and really there's no in that situation the treatment is to remove the eye so he doesn't get infected and he doesn't get an infection around his brain or die. So um, so the surgery this is is um, removing the eye, and then on the second page um, is is a portrait of him, and then you see him holding his rifle at the top, and so what Didier said to the the um, illustrator who, who put the book together, is he described the operation, which I'll, I'll skip over for now, but um, it says the, the operation is complete. This, so this starts, uh, I think it starts over here, the text. But anyway, it says, the operation is completed. The patient's wound is dressed, his head wrapped in a bandage again. In the morning, he emerges. He is Zuf, as the Afghans say, groggy. The first person he sees is his father, who has not left his bedside for a minute. In a slurred voice, the Muj asks Regis, who's one of the doctors, did you give my father some tea? And the second thing he asks for when he has awakened a bit more is to have his rifle brought to him. He wants to check that he can aim with his left eye. So um, for me, you know, it's, it's quite compelling. And this is what I was talking about, about the neutrality and impartiality. The idea there is not to say we're here only for civilians or we're here for this side or that side, nor ultimately really is it for even to say that war is not right. This is not the point. The point is that there's a person in need, they're injured, they're a patient, they need medical assistance, and they're guaranteed that, actually, the, the right to be to receive medical assistance. Um, and that treatment is done. Now, now we'd be a little bit fussier about, actually, it's not really okay to have the gun in the hospital. I'll talk about that later. Um, but this is a little while ago, and I think it was a, this setting was quite a bit less formal. They were just in, in the, um, they're aside the mosque or something here, I think. Um, but that idea that, uh, you know, it's not about asking which side are you on, are you planning to fight again? Just like you, again, you work in the emergency room, someone's, you know, there was a mugging, there was a fight. You're not asking who started the fight, who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. It's about doing this. But it's, it's also, there's a kind of a, you know, it's a bit horrifying at the same time, but it's very important, I think, to the work we do that there's that principle. Um, you know, we, um, I, I was asked a few years ago to give a talk at, at the, uh, 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 this was at Berkeley at, for a, as recipients of a, of a peace prize. And I, the whole talk was about how we're not a peace organization. Um, but we kind of are, but we're kind of not. But um, so anyway, but I, I mean, I think this is really key. You know, peace is political, right? Peace is a negotiated um, to not fight with each other. It's not necessarily. There may be someday, I hope, uh, some a really different sense of what that is. But for now, it's a political process or a political negotiation. Um, and um, you know, and so I was think I've been thinking actually for a few months now about social justice and that. But I, I'm, that definition really, I think, doesn't fit what we do either. I mean, there's a there's a rights issue in there, which individually I think m most of us believe in. But and I think we carry out social justice alongside the work what we're doing but that's the aim is not the, that the aim is really bringing and making sure that people are getting the treatment they need and when that's not possible to try to do something about it for that patient and not beyond but I hope there's disagreements I hope you guys ask me about that um, okay 
So I'm going to run through. I, I, what I want to do is give you a couple of. Um, so that so that sense of um, speaking out around awareness, raising awareness, both about what's going on and also about um, and also about the dilemmas and the issues that are involved in the work we do. I want to talk more uh, now. Move a bit towards. Um, really from awareness to really public advocacy and call to action. And I have like three or four examples of, um, of medical um, that are really concrete medical things um, because, again, that medical identity and those things are key to what we do. Um, I'm going to play this. It's so much more dramatic in my mind than when I, when I watched him speaking, but I'll read it again if you can't hear it. Um, so I want to run through a few things. So this is a is a brief thing of Bernard Pakul, who's an old-time MSFer who went on to start the Access, the, the Campaign for Access to Essential Medicines, and now the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. Super brilliant guy, um, very undramatic speaker, which is unfortunate. Um, I mean, anyway, I think he's really dramatic, but the video doesn't come up. But I, I want to show it to you, and then we'll read it again. So he's at... The, this is the WTO meeting in Seattle. Um, you remember the, the conflicts, the sort of more or less rioting in the streets. Um, and this is inside at, um, at a meeting there where he's taken, I, I don't know, I think he had 60 seconds or something was given to, to say something. And this is a trade meeting, which certainly is not our normal thing. So can you play that? I hope it's, you can hear it. Why are we medical mankind against here in Seattle to start the ministerial meeting on trade? Because our patients are dying. Our patients are dying. Not because of diseases are uncurable, but because as consumers, they do not provide a viable market for pharmaceutical products. Okay. Actually, on the big screen, it comes out much better. Um, <laughs> I have a you know netbook, so it's like this, um, you know. So he went there at this time. Um, the cost of antiretroviral treatment for a patient was somewhere between five to eight thousand dollars per person per year, and that's largely due at the time. The argument was to the fact that they, these were brand name patented protective medicines. Fairly, you know, within the year or so after that, when generic competition was allowed through lots of complicated things. But that price over the ensuing couple of years went down to $100 per patient per year. Wow. And this is why you can treat HIV patients around the world. Wow. Now, there's a whole new host of problems of resistant uh, HIV, of needing second and third line drugs. And we're, it's the same thing again. These are patent protected. There's new, um, there's new ways of allowing medicines to be produced and available. And then there's new ways of subverting those laws and fighting. There's an argument going on right now in Europe where there's a law that was designed to prevent counterfeit medications, but is recently being used to harass generic product, generic manufacturers. Um, there's a number of different ones. Our thing is, you know, hands off our medicines or something like that. Um, but you, you know, it's medical, and we need to go there. But you know, some things are you can do with a scalpel and gauze and other things. You need things that we can't create out of the blue and making drugs like this accessible to patients like this, there's no loss of market, right? None of the people that we're going to treat with these are going to be buying it on their own. Right. Um, but it's extraordinarily complex, and this is an ongoing uh, kind of, um, this is an ongoing battle that's, that's just, you know, with each step forward, it's another obstacle. So um, another thing is, um, oh, sorry, I've got... Um, 
So another thing is HIV funding itself. Um, and I just I want to, you know, so actually because of that change in the, in the cost of drugs, um, the a number of people treated worldwide has really w has gone in, in large term tremendously, um, although there's still, uh, there's still um, literally something like, um, I think it's 14 million now or 16 million patients who need antiretroviral treatment now, who meet criteria to be treated now, who, are, who don't have um, medicines. But there's about, uh, I can't remember now, 9 million? Anyway, I think about 9 million who are getting treated. Um, so, um, and the reason is because now some of those those tools are available at this, and this is in some ways one of the one of the greatest global public health successes. It's really it's unbelievable so so far. And then what's happened is in the last couple of years is that all of the major donors are stepping back from these funding commitments. Um, you've heard this. You've heard this kind of going about um, in different ways. Um, the Obama administration had their global health initiative, which in the end actually was about the same amount of money as before with lots of other um, cost-effective programs with an effective essentially defunding of, of HIV programs um, uh, and, uh, and, and all the problems that go with that. We've seen it on the field already. So programs, you know, Kenya, one example, is 90 to 95% of all the people treated for HIV in Kenya are treated with donor money, money that comes from outside the country. So you get a sense of the dependence, the dependence on it. Um, We've seen stockouts, shortages, this general defunding. Um, for me, what is the most brutal is that it's very common practice in many HIV programs now um, that um, you can only enroll new patients w when you have space, right? Which means when one of your current patients has died, right? Um, and the the like sitting there in a room as a doctor or as a or whoever is is working as a nurse as an administrator. Um, enrolling patients saying, oh, yeah, you meet criteria. Yeah, you clearly need treatment. You do everything. And, but, you know, we'll just have to wait for someone to die before we can start you on this. It's really, I mean, it's an astonishing, it's really an astonishing thing. And it's what our administration effectively is saying, as well as many of the other donors. Um, there's, a, I'm just going to read you a quote from um, a patient in a report that was, um, it's called, this is the picture from it, it's called No Time to Quit, HIV AIDS Treatment Gap Widening in Africa. So this is a patient um, by the name of Catherine uh, in Kenya also. So if there is reduced funding, then it will mean more people will die and we will have more orphans. The ones that are positive often need to assist others like their children. People will lose hope and die. It will be the end. The country will become poorer. If there are no drugs, there is no future. This, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's clear, I, I think, what the, the feeling and, and what goes on behind that. It's, um, this again, this is a, a current major um, debate. People are having this all over. There's a lot of talk of, um, of uh, you know, economic difficulties, all this stuff. But, you know, the cost pale in comparison to the costs that were spent on uh, non-health, yeah. non-medical non things. There's also, the other thing is, um, there was a paper that's somewhat controversial, but there was a paper um, at, uh, in The Lancet, I think, uh, I don't know, six months ago now, about, or maybe nine months, um, that was really what people are now calling the test and treat method, which is, which is forget the criteria, forget you have to wait till someone starts to get sick, forget till they fall to a CD4 of 200 or 350. You test people if they're positive, you treat. 
And the projections from that are that actually you change the curve of the epidemic. You know, at 200 treatment, you kind of slow it down for a community, and at 350, you can kind of plateau what the epidemic looks like. And if you treat everyone, you have such a reduction in transmission, even without other things, that you literally, you know, you, the curve goes like this. Well, you're backwards. Anyway, the curve goes like this and then really falls off. Now, there's methodologic complaints. People, it's an exaggeration. Uh, okay, but you, the, the possibility of changing the epidemic, right, is something that we have really, we've shown how to do it, MSF and many others. We've shown how to do it. It's possible. Adherence, drugs, monitoring, everything's possible, and it's just now it's the commitment to do that. Um, so I'm going to go... Uh, I'm going to read you something else. So um, la last year was the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Chagas disease. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. It's a very faint memory from medical school. You spent like half an hour on it. Anyway, so, um, so we took advantage of that. I think that's the next one. Yeah, we took advantage of that to... Um, to do some events and some public speaking. Um, so Chagas disease is a parasitic disease. It's mostly endemic in like Central and, uh, and um, Central and South America. Um, it's a parasitic disease. The latency is extremely long. You get infected and you don't get sick till 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. Um, and, um, and then you have often um, really end stage, a very kind of malignant kind of heart failure or um, or a, a, a sort of um, gastrointestinal um, dilatation, like the muscles just don't work. Um, and it's a quite malignant kind. It progresses very rapidly once it finally sets in. Um, so we did a number of events. Um, we had a, there was a scientific symposium that really gathered people together. Um, and the night before that, we had a public event in Los Angeles. Just We thought was about, when we went, we thought it was about just People in, you know, near UCLA and just kind of generally you know, raising awareness about this thing. And, um, and the patients that we had no idea were out there, that no one had any idea were out there, came out of the woodwork. Wow. We know from statistics that there's about 300,000 people in the United States who are infected with Chagas disease. Um, about 700 of them have been already identified by because they donated blood, and the, and the Red Cross now screens our blood for Chagas when we donate it, even though most of us have like never outside this room anyway, or have never heard of it. Um, and um, anyway, so I'm just going to um, I'll read this. So I took what the um, patients, people, you know, just coming forward and raising their hand after this like public event. And then, so this is part of what I said to the symposium the next morning. This is, uh, this is October of, oh, I guess it's the 102nd year, not the 101st, sorry. Um, so, um, so last night we held a public event on Chagas disease at the Broad Theater. Um, Myra Gutierrez, who spoke actually to the symposium directly, um, described to us her 11-year search for treatment after being diagnosed by chance. She was an early um, donor. She gave blood about now 13 years ago to the Red Cross. They were not screening at the time, but they were doing sort of trial runs of screening, and she tested positive. They sent her a letter, um, you know, just letting you know uh, you've tested for Chagas disease, period, you know? Um, you know, and um, so no, there's no, because there was no program, there was no treatment, there was no follow-up, there was nothing. Um, so anyway, so... Um, 11-year, now 13-year search for treatment after being diagnosed. 
From the audience, we heard about a Mexican man whose mother died 20 years ago from heart failure from Chagas and who's never um, been tested, even tested for the disease. The parasite comes from bugs that live in the walls of the house, right? So family members, this is an obvious contact. We listened to an American college student who received his diagnosis of Chagas just two days ago before this meeting, whose symptoms were previously dismissed by several doctors. He's scheduled to see a cardiologist that week who's very unlikely to know what to do or or have anything to offer. And we heard from a 61-year-old Bolivian woman with Chagas disease who has has had repeated esophageal surgeries, been told she has damage to her heart in two areas, and in 40 years in the United States has never been offered treatment. Um, So, I mean, this is the, you know, there are two drugs in the world that work for Chagas disease. They they seem to work. We're using it in programs in Bolivia, um, in Brazil, and Mexico. They're both about 50 years old. They're not great, but they work. They cause some skin problems, but it turns out you can use them. Um, but there's no new drugs being developed. There's no test of cure, so you can tell that someone's had it, but once you treat them, you have no idea if they're better or not better or if they're going to develop the disease. Um, there's no programs, so the only treatment site right now is at UCLA, a cardiologist who sort of ran into this by accident. She's treated about 50 people, but 700 are identified, and there's not even contact with them, and 300,000, nothing. Mm-hmm. So there's actually an expo of all in northern Virginia that we're running right now. There's like an odd concentration of Bolivians there. Um, so um, there'll be an expo. So maybe there'll be some, there'll be a program here, which is, raises all sorts of other weird questions for us. But it's relevant, and there's nothing going on. Wow. So um, I'm going to show you, and this is you know this just we don't show a lot of pictures where the MSF workers like looking, reading instructions, trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> um, but it gives you a sense that even in this program, like this is one of the you know the, this is one of the places in the world that treats more of these patients and knows what to do better than anyone else. But the, even the testing that is there is really complicated. Um, but it's able to be done in the field, and even that is, is really a major thing, but still not so simple. You can see the old EKG uh, things with the suction cups on the chest, if you look closely. But, um, and just screening to see if he's got manifest, manifestations of the disease. But you don't want to wait till you have a lousy EKG to, um, to start thinking about testing or treating someone. Um, so I, I just want to. Um, I'm going to keep going. How are we doing on time? Uh-oh. All right. Okay, I'm going to plow through here. Um, um, I'm just going to. So we're doing a lot. Uh, um, there's a lot to say about um, malnutrition in the world. It's um, it's there's chronic severe malnutrition. The numbers are unbelievable, but. Um, and these are pictures I took when I first worked on this problem. This is from Sierra Leone um, in 2002, 2003. Since that time, we have ready-to-use food, foil packets, energy-dense food with animal source protein, things like this inside. You hand it to kids. They rip it off. They eat it. You can treat like 10 times as many kids with no staff. You can treat them at home with their family. The tools to take care of acute severe malnutrition and the tools to prevent it to go to an area to feed with these supplements and to prevent kids from getting this at all, the tools are all there. And it's a matter of funding and a matter of commitment to doing this. Um, and I could go, there's a lot to say about this, but I want to keep going and, and introduce you to other things. So I want to play this. This is the second video. I just want, I want you to see this. 
So that's the end. It's a little more produced, but. So, you know, th this is part of a star for attention. It's a, um, a mul kind of a multimedia thing. There's online videos. It's, it was done in con connection with this photo gallery in Brooklyn with really amazing um, photographers, but there's a lot more online. The thing that I'm really struck by in this is, you know, there's the numbers and the costs and all this argument at this kind of global level. But what I'm struck by and reminded of by this is, you know, you see the doctor kneeling down you know, eye to eye with the child, with the patient, you see her attentiveness to the actual, the, the interaction as a kind of a medical assessment, yeah. the degree of interaction yeah. or, or the lack of it, the, you know, the, the willingness and the desire to engage at that level, um, her awareness of what's normal, not normal, but that like really, again, being there, being at the bedside, and it's, I think, why um, that, why you can speak out about things like this and you can, um, bring things to people's attention and, and why I, for me I find these things compelling because of the, that choice again to be there and to, to be able to to bring into what you're saying and the arguments over policy but really that comes rooted from this experience of really being right there. I, I find that with her you know really like looking to engage and hoping one of these days that child will yeah. start to is for me it's really moving. Um, I, I want to um, so I'll just I, I wanna, I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit, um, but so so we're talking again against uh, uh, this ladder or this spectrum, right? Of kind of, of awareness and and um, both dilemmas and problems, speaking out, advocacy, and then there's sort of a, a top rung or anyway, wh whatever you want to call it, which we think of as sort of denunciation, right? It's one thing we've put things in front of people you. You raise awareness, you explain what the situation is, you explain the obstacles, but some, sometimes that's not enough. And this, this next kind of step of, of denunciation where it's speaking out but with specific blame and, and attribution of responsibility. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but just um, at the end of December, the international MSF president, Uni Karunakara, went to Haiti to talk about what, what we found to be an unbelievable, like a complete lack of response to the cholera epidemic there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of quick things and, and then move on. But I, I think there's a really major issue there, which is a concern about the overall the international aid structure and the coordination under the UN of clusters to address issues. And in this case, one example, and it's not the only one, obviously, but one example of really an abject failure of that system in a place flush with money and attention and, and, and um, visibility. Um, so he, he said, uh, Haiti should be an unlikely backdrop for the latest failure of the humanitarian relief system. The country is small and accessible, and following the earthquake, it boasts one of the largest and best-funded international aid deployments in the world. Why, at least 12,000 non-governmental organizations are there. Why then have 2,500 people died of cholera, a disease that's readily treated and controlled? Um, I, um, sorry, I just want to skip ahead. Um, so, the, what, um, so 10 days after the outbreak hit Port-au-Prince, our teams realized the inhabitants of City Soleil um, let me show. Yeah, of City Soleil had no access to chlorinated drinking water, even though aid agencies under the UN Water and Sanitation Cluster had accepted funds to ensure just that access. We began chlorinating the water ourselves. There's just one operational waste management system in the entire city of Port-au-Prince, a city of three million people. And at the same time, Haitians were deluged with text messages imploring them to wash before eating while the water they had to bathe their children in was our untreated sewer water. Um, you know, and this is, you know, that, those text messages come from organizations funded to do patient education, to, to do health promotion, right? So the amount of money, the, uh, what's gone in there, and, and the, the lack of response is, is really quite concerning. There's going to be more stuff, hopefully you'll see about the current coordination of the aid system and, and how some people feel like it's really not working. Um, you know, while, Uni said, so while, while coordination is important, it should not be an end in itself. It must be based on reality and oriented towards action to ensure that needs are covered. The aid community at large has failed to prevent unnecessary deaths in a population already so tragically affected by one catastrophe after another. It's really, it's really a major failure here. I pulled this picture um, from a, a group of them to sort of take a look at what's going on in Haiti. But the thing that's striking to me is this like disastrous situation with sanitation and cleanliness. And if you look behind the people, the buildings are standing. Yeah. Right? So this is not like devastated coastal Port-au-Prince where everything's destroyed, nothing's working. This is like, these buildings are standing. Mm -hmm. And you look at the street and the conditions and then you know the number of people. And, and anyway. Um, so... I want to talk, um, I want to read you a couple of things about Rwanda um, and the genocide um, from 1994. I, I don't think I'll say very much about it. I, I just want to um, read a couple of things. Speaking out, advocacy, denunciation, I, I think this is kind of that end of this, this spectrum of these group of activities. A call for intervention, so m military intervention, is off that scale. Yeah. Um, and it's really important, but you cannot, you can't, um, you don't do that. You, it's, essentially, it's, it's asking for people to kill in order to save others. It's something way beyond the pale for humanitarian principles and humanitarian organization. It's really not the thing that we should be doing. But there are circumstances like this with it, 
complete and utter breakdown of not law or, or organization, but like the entire society itself is completely broken down where there's really nothing else to do. And it was the one time in our history where we had said, it's too much um, and something needs to be done. So I want to read you a couple things from um, these, we call these, there's a series of these, these um, case binders about different things that were, that different situations we were in that brought up really difficult issues for us. And this is from the one on, um, on uh, Rwanda. Um, so I'm going to read, I, I'm just going to, I want to read to you three things. One is um, um, a description of, of something that uh, MSF staff witnessed. This is from April, um, April in 94 uh, in Butare um, in the south of Rwanda. So 150 of our hospital patients, women, children, and adults were killed. They were selectively taken out and hacked to death in front of our eyes. What was most striking for us was that five of our house personnel were also killed. Sabine, one of them, was a close friend of our team. She was the elder nurse. She was seven months pregnant. Everyone else was Tutsi. I knew what was happening, but when they came to take Sabine, I intervened physically. Sabine was working with, was working with the nurse who was attempting to suture a patient outside because we had tens of Tutsi patients in the hospital who were trying to use it as a refuge place. They pulled the patient off the table. Of course, the sutures were bleeding all over. They came to take Sabine, and I intervened and said, leave Sabine alone. This has nothing to do with, she has nothing to do with all this. She's been working for you, the soldiers. We had 140 Hutu soldiers at the time because they, the, the line had advanced in front of that. Um, the hospital is a neutral territory. Everyone um, has access to treatment here. Um, I was hoping they would understand that. Sabine had been working for them, the Hutu soldiers, their problems, their wounds, everything. I said, Sabine has been working for you for this time, and besides, she is a Hutu. She has nothing to do with this. The captain who was responsible for the different teams looked at me very carefully, and then he opened his pocket and took out a piece of paper, and on this piece of paper, there was a list of names typed, and Sabine's name was on it. He looked at the paper, and he looked at me, and he said, yes, you are right. Sabine is a Hutu. But her husband is a Tutsi, and his, and his baby is going to be a Tutsi. So Sabine was killed, and so was the baby. This, um, you know, there are arguments about um, um, genocide, the, the use of the word genocide, a lot of really bitter arguments about the situation in Darfur that I, I won't go into, but there, you know, there was no question that the, the premeditation, the planning, the, the intention to exterminate people by their identity, by who they are, it's clearly met those criteria. There's an entry in here that, that's labeled template for collecting information on the massacres and abuses. And it just is like a listing, you know, name of witness and MSF position, type of incident, place, day, time, name and status of victims. Um, MSF to specify its investigation for the three following categories of victim, patients and casualties treated by us in hospital, refugees in the camps where we work, local staff working for MSF. As much detail as possible, accompanied if available by maps, names of witnesses, and other backup sources. It just goes on and on like this. I mean, it, it's disturbing the, the necessity of it. It's disturbing, disturbing also for me a bit in the way that it responds in the same kind of insane like organization and attempt that the list is it's yeah. disturbing in all sorts of ways but it was what was needed to be done in this 
from the beginning of what we were witnessing being there until um, intervention came. Um, and ultimately, there was a call for intervention that really came too late. Um, and the call says, um, Today, to fail to back up words with action is obscene. Genocide calls for a radical, immediate response. The only response to date has been first aid, but genocide cannot be stopped by doctors. That's the, the um, press release, and it was an appeal published in one of the newspapers at the time. Um, so, like I said, this is... Um, there's a lot to talk about this, but the, the ability to, to speak and to go to that point, even though in some ways it, um, it abandons our, who we are as an organization, who we are to, to call for this kind of intervention. But again, everything was rooted in being there at the time, seeing this, witnessing, and being present with the patients um, in medical response, in treating them one side, the other side, taking care of the soldiers, but being there in this. And it, it's rooted in that, and it was the reason why we felt we were able to take that really unprecedented step. Um, although, I think in, in retrospect, we, we could all very clearly say that, it, it was, that even that was much too late. Okay. Um, I want to... Let me do... Okay. Um, let me just... I, I just wanted to say maybe one, one more quick thing. Um, so I, I just want to, just really quickly, actually. So I'm going to skip ahead, and we can go back. So um, there's uh, there, there's a lot. Well, okay, I've talked about that elsewhere, but Afghanistan and, and New York Presbyterian. Um, I, I, I want to. We can go back if you want. I, I just want to um, put a couple of, a couple of things in front of you. Um, so this is, this is one of them, you know, like I kept saying, it's rooted in the experience and rooted back in the individual. I just want you to, to read this. This is a, simply a blog. We used to be allergic to them, but a blog from someone in MSF in the field, actually with MSF Canada. And I think you get that sense of, of really um, being, you're touching it. So, um, you know, it's messy, um, it's not capitalized, um, but I, I mean, it, you really have the sense for me of like, that, you know, you're feeling it with your skin, you know, you're really, you're there, and, um, and that it's a choice, and that actually this, this piece of, did it kick, oh, it actually got cut off, but there's a, the next line is, yeah, he said, uh, I felt diminished, that I, I couldn't respond to that, um, but actually didn't give money, um, and did try to do other things, but um, this just, again, this feeling of being able to be there and then be able to reflect on what's going on and, and, and be aware of what, what he's feeling internally. It's really the core experience. It's that first experience that leads to all this stuff. There's one more video I'll just show you. It's super quick. And this of, um, of, uh, of some Haitian national staff who worked with us in Haiti. I just want to show this, and then, then we'll, we'll uh, go. I'd like... Half an hour, I guess. <laughs> you talk about it. 
So this, this is a couple of international stuff. Um, so I mean, so I mean, so these are the staff working. You saw a lot, a lot, a lot of media. This is just a few weeks after the earthquake. Um, you saw a lot about um, trundling in international staff taking care of people, um, but really very little about lo local local people helping each other and doing the work. They're unbelievably dedicated. Mo a lot of the staff, like their homes were gone, right? They were sleeping in the street, literally. Um, some of them, if they didn't have family, they more just basically slept next to the hospital tents. You know, but so they're sort of the, the they're the people suffering that are that we're trying to get to who are speaking about their experience there, the people doing the care and being there and choosing to keep coming back to take care of the people there. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's all the sides of that. Um, and that they are willing to talk and share what's going on to, to and that, you know, our the fee, the need I think we have to make sure that people know about it and people can see it and find their way to respond, all that stuff. I, anyway, I I find all that in there. So I'll stop there, yeah. Thank you so much. I know. Thank you. Uh, can we have some lights? And we don't have as much time as we usually do, but we'll take five more minutes to hear from, uh, from your questions. Good, okay. Please. 
Um, so it's uh, even more than before, but actually the Juliette who led the missions into Afghanistan, she at one point had a, there was a blockage, which was that you're not allowed to, one, you know, you're a woman, but you're not allowed to bring women staff here. And she said, if we don't, if we can't see women patients, if we can't bring women staff, we don't come. You know, so that, you know, that small image of her in the middle of Afghanistan, like, amazing. And we still have that. The return to Afghanistan was the same thing. You, you, you want to make um, requirements about ethnicity and, you know, Americans or not Americans, do anything you want. But the women are, and children are, you know, especially more and more, we realize, bear the major brunt of, the, of mortality and morbidity in these circumstances. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And, and literally, we'll, we won't go. Um, I can't say, you know, there's always exceptions, but it's, there's no point in being there if you can't take care of the vast majority of people who are, need to be treated. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I was really struck by that blog and um, by many of these images in thinking about how you provide resources to continually sensitize your staff. Um, I thought that blog piece spoke a little bit about the flirtation with desensitization and um, in light of the many narratives you shared, I was curious how you keep your staff sensitive. We're, um, you know, I would say until about three or four years ago, I would have to say we don't at all and we're horrible at taking care of our staff. Um, I, I think it's better now, you know, partly because of the, the degree and extent of mental health programs we're running in the field. We've sort of reverse started to be aware that maybe we should once in a while pay attention to ourselves, which is unbelievable. But anyway, so there are um, there are fairly reasonable mental health support and 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 paramental health. You know, some of the some of the people who are going are more or less, but it, it's very incomplete. There's you know people there's 70 or 80 countries of people represented those who are going to the field. Um, and then there, the staff, you know, the staff I worked with in Sierra Leone was like 130 people. They lived in all these different places. The, the resources are limited. You know, we stay sensitive because we confront each other about yeah. the reality of what we're seeing, what we're doing. It's not, I mean, I, I wish it was more, I, I can't say it's terribly nurturing. I think we're better at it than we used to. We used to be, but I think we're more. But but there is an ongoing kind of debate and confrontation about, you know, oh wait, you just described this, but what is going, you know, but didn't you realize? Didn't you see that? And I think mixing like experienced, older like people with like new people, fresh every time coming in, and making sure we impart to them that idea that they're just as responsible. You know, it's first mission; they just arrived, but really knowing that they're responsible just as much as anyone else to, to see and do that. There's a, there was a movie, Living in Emergency. I don't know how many of you saw that. Um, I think it gets to that. There's a couple of really burnt out um, volunteers in there who are just, you know, just you know, kind of half drunk and, and a couple of scenes. And then there are others who are totally fresh and overwhelmed. And you get a feel of it. And in some ways, we, some parts of that are good examples of what we do and other parts of it are stuff that happens.
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we're internally starting to do. I mean, we've we've internet-based things like um, logistic ordering, which is not trivial in, in many ways. It's one of the biggest important things to, to be able to do what we do, um, and um, and starting we don't not and starting to move towards maybe like web-based medical records, things like that. The vast majority of time, though. The information is the le- is very often the least of our problems, um, and the problem is is you know this is a key thing. This comes up again in nutrition. If you talk to major nutrition organizations, they're running huge educational programs to teach mothers how like what foods to feed their babies. Like, uh, you know, as if they have they've been doing that for kind of a while, like since the dawn of time. <laughs> Um, the bottom line is they don't have the food. They need, they know that their kid needs to have milk. You know, I mean, so that those are really the you know access to fresh water. I mean, people will not you know given the choice, they're not going to wash their hands in sewage. So I hate and not I hate to be that blunt, but I mean, so we could do things better, and we're starting to look at that. There's we have to, we're running bigger programs, hospitals. We have to have an electronic record. We have long-term, very complex surgeries now. We have to be able to, to follow things like that. But um, but most of these big issues, it's we're still at this like most. You know, do we have the drugs? Do we have the water? That's. Uh, Um, we're horrible at figuring out when it's time to go. Um, you know, for a long time it was like, well, the war is over, we can leave. But it's very clear that the, the health system may be exactly the same, and in some cases worse. Um, there was a very bad um, malnutrition crisis in Angola. Um, I'm forgetting the year, but when, when the war kind of ended and organizations left, it was a, the health indicators went got much worse after the war was over. Um, so leaving is something we do badly. We're, we're, I think we're thinking more about longer-term programs generally, though it's, I, we have to retool a bit to, to, to do that right. Where to go, you know, I, I think FAIR is an exaggeration. I think we try to really pay attention to principles and things like that and do the best decision we can. It's where we can get access to. The key things are morbidity, mortality indicators. Sometimes epidemiologists will be with their first team, like what are the mortality rates, what's going on. Um, what do we know? Are there something that we have an expertise at that others don't have? Um, orthopedic trauma in the Haiti um, in, after the earthquake is something. So what's the added value? What's the burden of morbidity and mortality? What are the places others can't go? We have a reputation uh, and an ability to negotiate um, that's, and we're not funded by, uh, by belligerent governments, things like that. So we're able to kind of create a space to work um, and do that. So where the others aren't, what the others can't do. Uh, the, I mean, these are the morbidity, mortality, that thing. And then, you know, also there is some sensibility to what needs to be seen. You know, what is, what's not showing up, what needs to be answered to, um, which goes along with the other stuff, but not always exactly the same. So, yeah. I don't know that we're fair, but uh, that's the goal. So. We'll take one more question and then leave time for you to individually.
want, so children or people that have fled those conflicts and going back and interested in doing that work. Um, I, you know, I, I, I rarely think I would find myself in a situation where I know or MSF knows more than they do given the communication with family, with community, things like that, you know. Um, I don't know how to make a blanket. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, there's a huge amount of work. There's a huge number of organizations talking about this kind of thing. Um, I think there's there are a number of organizations that, that do really good work. You know, we've seen what Partners in Health has done in Haiti for years. Uh, Action Against Hunger is someone that's been very serious about what they do. And, you know, so if it's working with an organization to really understand what they do and how they go about it, um, I mean, there's no end to the possibilities for work there, but safety and local security and issues like that, we're asking the, you know, people like that, we're asking those communities what's possible and where we can go. I don't know if that kind of answered. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm going to close this conversation, though not what the conversation is about. You'll see uh, there are 